Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. So welcome to another episode of the Nature Photographer Podcast brought to you by NAMPA and Wild and Exposed. We have another full lineup of folks here tonight. We have Michael Morrow, Jason Loftus, Ron Hayes, myself, Don Wilson, and our guest tonight is Morgan Heim, who I'm pretty excited to talk to. Um, in this format, we've talked to a few times in other other settings such as summit and different things. I know we've passed cross paths over the years. Um, before we get started tonight, though, I do want to um, send a shout out. I was in Badlands National Park this weekend, and somebody actually recognized me from the podcast. So I sadly I did not get his name, but I wanted to send a, th a shout out to him and say thanks for listening and thanks for um, the the nice compliments you guys ha you had about the about the show. That was always that's nice to hear that that people are enjoying what we're, we're producing for, for everybody out there. So that's awesome, Don. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, like that was, it's always kind of someone recognize you from a podcast. It's always kind of, especially when it's not home, you know, and you know, here in Colorado, it's not too bad. You kind of expect to run into people that, you know, but yeah, when you're two States away and it happens, I was like, Ooh, this is different. So so yeah, I was pretty excited. He was he he enjoys not only ours, but he listens to Wild and Exposed too. So he was he was enjoying the information. And then we went back to photographing bighorn sheep babies, which were absolutely adorable. They were so cute. So I think what they're the, the cutest little animal on the planet. It's been a good baby year. I don't know. I've seen a swift fox den, a coyote den, red fox den, the baby bighorn. It's been a good year for babies, so Hopefully that's a good sign for the rest of the year. So why don't we get into talking to Morgan and since we have her here and kind of um, let's introduce her. She is a she started as a conservation photographer. She's evolved into a filmmaker with some pretty hefty projects under her belt. Some um, so I, some some videos that I've I've thoroughly enjoyed. I think I've seen all of the ones that you've produced. Um, so. But we'll talk about that tonight. We'll also talk a little bit about some of the new projects that you're working on with Jamie Heinbuck um, and some of the, the classes and courses that you teach so you can help other photographers. And so with that, why don't we, um, Morgan, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and all the, the wonderful things that you can say about Nampa along the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. There's so many wonderful things I could say about Nampa. They are basically like my parents <laughs> in this field. Um, and I, I want to apologize really quick. A neighbor seems to have chosen this time to start mowing the lawn. Um, and I don't know how to get away from that. So hopefully it's not showing you can't up too hear much it. audio. You're okay. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, Don, you did a really nice introduction. I don't. I don't really know what else to add, but that I, I, I really did get my start in Nampa. Um, I kind of did a dual start with Nampa and ILCP, the International League of Conservation Photographers, um, back in like 2008. Um, I received a college scholarship with Nampa and at the same time was invited to apply for the Emerging League in ILCP and 
I have to say, like after years and years of really bad photography and not really knowing what I'm doing or where to find a community or how to move forward, I found myself in this very fortunate situation to get that scholarship and, um, and find that community. So NAMP has been huge in, in helping with that and they even had me on the board for a little while. Um, <laughs> they subjected themselves to that. <laughs> um, yeah, but now I, I make my whole living doing conservation photography and I'm really excited now to be in a position of getting to, you know, pay it forward a little bit. Um, a lot of people helped me and, and now I'm finding ways that I can help other people. And sometimes I earn an income from it and sometimes I'm just doing it. Um, and it's a really gratifying way to, to be a part of the community. So thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So why don't we start with something that I heard recently? So we'll kind of start with maybe some current things that you're working on. I recently heard that you're working on a cormorant project, which yes. sounded kind of interesting, considering that I think I heard you actually say that cormorants don't get too much love. And I would kind of agree with you there. And But they are kind of fascinating birds. Yeah, they are. You know what, though? I have to say, so they don't. Cormorants are this bird that there's a, there's several different species we have three different species just here where I live in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and they seem very abundant. And for people who know what they are, there's a lot of folks who don't like them. They think they're dirty and ugly and a nuisance and a pest and competing for fish and all sorts of things that we attach negative relationships to with wildlife, not we necessarily generally, but groups of certain people do. And, and then I, but I found though, the photographic community has like, I would say almost like an adoration for this bird. I've never met a photographer who was like, I hate those cormorants. I wish they'd go away. Like everyone seems to have an affinity for them. So, um, I've been fascinated that with them for years and I live in a town where there's this really unique phenomena that happens, um, where there used to be the largest nesting colony of double crested cormorants in the world on this manufactured island in the mouth of the Columbia that is, you know, within a few miles of my home. And um, some stuff happened with some controversial management choices and the birds were killed by, you know, the hundreds and thousands. And, um, they, they flood their colony on the island, but now they're nesting on the Astoria Megler Bridge, which is this kind of iconic bridge that's been in a bunch of movies um, in this small town. And so I wanted to start working on a project about the birds here. And then, of course, it's expanded as I continue to learn more and more about them and some of the science going on and meeting more and more of the biologists. And um, it's really kind of taken on a life of its own. And I just feel very, they're like my muse right now. <laughs> so they're teaching me a lot about life as well as about ecology. <laughs> Can you talk about the project as far as what are you trying to produce out of this? Is it a short yeah, film? So Is it a? It's multifaceted, but it's really stemming a lot from, there's kind of, I think, two main components. It's uh, there are, our kind of cultural relationship with the cormorant 
And then also the new science that's going on. And so there's a lot of science that's actually, it has a lot of cultural components because they overlap with our lives so much. So the cormorants are actually serving as bioindicators for a lot of environmental health. And um, they're helping to like map the ocean floor. Scientists are actually putting devices on cormorants because they dive so deep and they can dive into areas that people can't go to. And um, these cormorants are swimming down to the bottom of the coastal seabed there and mapping, you know, creating map, these really detailed maps of very difficult terrain um, and helping to do things like create uh, new navigational maps for shipping lanes. You know, they can use that information for that. So it's, there's all these interesting things that are tied up with cormorants. And, um, and I just recently, um, after about, gosh, I guess it was about six months of a process, uh, I got a permit to put time-lapse cameras on the Astoria Megler Bridge, which if you don't know anything about the Columbia, it's known as the graveyard of the Pacific. It's like the most dangerous um, water river entryway um, into the continent. And I got a permit. It involved getting like collaborations with Oregon State University and Oregon Department of Transportation and making sure things were good with like um, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife and the National Fish and Wildlife. And um I had to take a boat out and climb up this algae covered ladder um, at slack tide about 20, 25 feet with a backpack on my back and a solar panel strapped to the backpack and harnessed into the ladder and get up there. And I had about 30 minutes to set up two time-lapse cameras. And uh, it was both the, like one of the coolest things I ever got to see once I was up there and the scariest thing I probably have ever done. Um, I didn't think it was going to be possible. There are many times where I thought it was just going to not happen. Um, and then I found out today that um, I don't know what we're allowed to say on the podcast, but a bird shat on the lens, <laughs> like projectile poop on the front element of one of the time lapse. So I'm really, everyone, please just like pray for rain right now. I really, really need that to, to help keep this at least one of the cameras going. <laughs> so how did you find that out? Is it something where you're getting pictures sent to you occasionally from that camera system? Or is it something where you just look with binoculars and you can see? You can look with binoculars and see. And so I went out a couple days ago and it was fine. Um, but this morning I went out with the biologists from OSU and another organization called Real Time Research that are doing surveys and and the bio from OSU was like, so um, did your camera mean to have white speckles on it? And he had gone and checked it out, you know, and showed me a picture. And it's just like, yep, it's there. Like, <laughs> they have really good aim. <laughs> yeah. Or they or they just cover everything on the bridge at some point. I think those can both be true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, so Mike hit on it for a second. How did, how are you getting the, is it just, is it recording video or is it taking photos at a certain time frequency and yeah. is it just recording it to memory cards and then you've got to go and recover memory cards and change them out and stuff? Yes. So, uh, there's no changing out of memory cards. It is doing, uh, every five minutes it's for about 14 hours a day, uh, basically sunrise to sunset. Uh, it's taking a picture and, 
Yep. I had to use massive, massive cards, 512 gigabyte cards to last uh, what should be the length of the the season. And so one of the cameras, there's two cameras set up that are going to capture slightly different things. One is set up to do kind of a broader overview, still composed nicely of the colony. And, and we're hoping that that actually um, produces a bunch of phenology data. And phenology is basically like the study of the nesting cycle of a bird. So from the egg um, hatching up through fledging. And you get all sorts of other information. It's more complicated than that. There's more information that you get. But um, so uh, I'm actually collaborating with OSU. That's how I got the permit to provide them visual data on that. And then the other camera is set up to... Um, monitor, hopefully, the entire life cycle of a single cormorant family. Like you'll see other nests in the background, but there's a feature cormorant family. And so that's set up on a nest that still had eggs in it. So hopefully those eggs actually hatch. Um, they're just starting to hatch on the section of the bridge that I was on. And um, and then capture that through them fledging. Hopefully they, you know, Pray for success, pray for rain. There's a lot of things up in the air that could go wrong, but you just try and, you know, maybe we'll get yeah. to try next year or in subsequent years. That sounds like a fun project. Yeah. Thanks. I was just going to say there, there are a lot of things that could go right too. So yes, I like your thinking, Don. <laughs> I woke up the next morning being like, oh no, I should have done all these extra, like an extra strap here. And I should have checked the composition again or Oh, holy, you know, like, what did I press that screwed everything up right before I left? Because I was like, so worried about how I was going to get down back to the boat in time. <laughs> well, and, and the shaddy photos, um, <laughs> they kind of help tell the story, right? So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopefully we don't have like three months of just white <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea that, you know, you always think of, you know, birds like bald eagles or osprey or, you know, there's so many iconic big birds out there and, you know, people, they do, they kind of gloss over the cormorant. Oh, that's just another black bird. It's just, mm -hmm. you, know, you see them all the time or whatever. It's, it's interesting that there's actually some really fascinating true data that they're getting to use that benefits people. Yeah. And I mean, they're really full of personality too. Like today on the bio survey, I, I just have to share this like one story of what's probably one of my all time favorite sort of wildlife dramas I've ever seen, which is there was a cormorant couple um, on a nest on the bridge. And the what I'm just going to say is the female, I'm guessing it is the female on the nest. She was on the nest and her mate came back and they come back and they bring cormorants build their nests double crested, build their nests out of sticks. And usually the mates like out getting a stick or stuff to build up the nest a bit better. And this cormorant came back and he's offering her his gift and she's just giving him the cold shoulder. And, and he, what he's brought back is a feather, not a stick. And it's not the, it's clearly, it's not the first feather. This bird has a feather fetish. Like he, there's a, there's a couple other feathers just like sticking straight up out of the nest. And they're like the same kind of feather too. Um, and she's just like giving him the cold shoulder. And then he hops around to the front. And when he does that, a neighboring nest, there's a couple on that nest and they just get really pissed off at him. And he's just standing there in the middle and she's ignoring him. This other couple is like, 
lunging at him, kind of yelling, you know, doing the Cormoran equivalent of like yelling at him. And then he turns and he offers her the feather from the front. And after kind of waving it in her face a few times, she's like, fine, I'll take it. And she like tugs it out of his mouth. He like doesn't want to let it go. She tugs it out of his mouth and she throws it on the beam in front of the nest and is like, I told you I don't want it. And I know this is over anthropomorphizing, which I always warn people against, but we were the, all the biologists were just cracking up. And then, and then uh, he picked it back up. She flew off. He hopped up on the nest and then proceeded to place the feather in the same spot as where the other feathers were. And um, shortly thereafter, he also left the nest. And I was like, well, I guess that nest isn't very important. And one of the the team was like, I think what you just saw was a cormorant divorce. (laughs) (laughs) And and the icing on the cake was immediately after that. um, One of the birds from the irritated pair next door came over and started ripping apart the nest of this other cormorant couple that had just like had their scuffle and disagreement. And I don't know if this hap- is it happening like every day or if that was literally like, she's just like, you don't get it. I'm out of here. You're not a good mate choice. I don't know, but it was, it was really cool to see. Hopefully you got some of that on video, right? <laughs> I, I got it on stills. The boat is like, well, everyone would get seasick if I tried to do video, but I did get a nice array of stills. That's the beauty of what we do. You get to to witness these things. They're not just snapshots that you kind of come up on and you know, see something, take a photo and leave. You know, we spend a lot of time out there watching and observing and waiting and more waiting yeah. and a little more yeah. waiting. And and I'd say this was also a, an instance where uh, stills was the better tool than video because you just wouldn't be able to to get good footage, you know, motion footage on a boat that's going up and down that much and using such a long lens. Yeah. Unless you had a a shot over set up or, you know, on a a million dollar gimbal that is going to take that out of it. Exactly. Yeah. You're, it's not going to happen, but it's still fun to watch those things Mm -hmm. unravel. Fascinating. What's what kind of timeline are you looking at for the project or do you know at this point? I don't know. It's it's a multi-year project. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to call it. Um, but yeah, there there are a few stories that are are kind of in the works, and I, I'm just going to see how far I can take it. I'm still working out the specific conservation impacts of it because cormorants just need they need like a PR campaign, um, you know. But uh, there's there's a few, I think, local efforts as well as maybe eventually more national efforts, like getting things changed with um, right before the end of the last administration, Fish and Wildlife passed uh, uh, a new kind of rule that allowed for the culling of cormorants by more state, tribal, and um, federal agencies without having to first, and fish, like fish hatcheries, without having to go through a permit process. They kind of just issued a preemptive blanket permit that doesn't have really great oversight. Um, And so, you know, that seems a little bit cavalier. um, And I think they're trying to um, 
alleviate a lot of concerns for that a lot of people have. Um, but it's also like not not the best approach, I don't think. Not a good look for wildlife management, I don't think. That's my personal opinion. <laughs> there were a few things that happened in the last administration, but we won't get into too many politics here. <laughs> That's probably one yeah. thing we, we could say chat, but <laughs> politics might be something. <laughs> well, yeah. And I, I will say that it, it, things like this happen in almost any kind of administration. So, you know, it's the same, the same thing, honestly, that's going on with the park service right now. I know that a lot of it is to control people, but the parks were created for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. But if you look at current policies, it's all about keeping the people away and namely mm -hmm. the photographers, you know, uh, without them coming right out and saying it, every policy that's made lately has been basically against being able to go photograph wildlife in the parks. Yeah, I know there was that recent Supreme Court ruling that um, ruled in favor of filmmakers, like not needing to go through such stringent permitting requirements. Yep. Um, but it, I don't think it applies to still photography. And so that's a whole other battle that has to yeah, be it does. fought. You're, well, still photographers never really had to have a permit uh, in the parks if, unless you had a film crew, then you're required to have one. But that, that decision was great. But the counter has been to uh, start to haze every bear that comes within mm -hmm. a quarter mile of the road system. Um, hazing, you know, wolves, removing kills, you're supposed to manage it naturally, but they're removing uh, bison and elk carcasses in Yellowstone so that the animals don't come close enough to the roads to cause traffic issues. Um, and it's been the same thing with the Forest Service lately as well. So, yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. Any administration is going to have decisions to make, and we're not privy to all of the information. But I would say you're right. Culling an entire species is probably not the best approach. Yeah, it's uh, – I, I think it's uh, – and this is something that has – I talked to a lot of biologists about it and I think there's just a lot of concern that, that, that it's a frequently used tool with this species in particular and um, up in Canada and Toronto, they just approved a, a hunting season on cormorants, double crested cormorants that had no, it had originally it was going to be each licensed hunter could kill up to 50, five zero cormorants per day. Um, over the course of the season, which lasted about three and a half months. And uh, they did, after protests, I think they brought it down to 15, one, five um, birds per day. And those are birds that migrate through the entire Great Plains, like down through the Mississippi Delta. Um, and so there's a lot of, there's so many issues tied up with cormorants. There's, it, it's part of what makes them so fascinating. You know, they really like coyotes and some of these other animals push you to think about big questions and the choices that we make in coexistence and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm excited about exploring them and, and uh, trying not to judge too much because really my job is to um, look at this from as many different perspectives as possible, even though I have my side, but I want to pay respect to where other people are coming from. I'll keep, we will definitely keep an eye out on that project. It sounds fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I just keep thinking about, I mean, the first time I ever photographed a cormorant up close, they have these amazing eyes, mm-hmm. the blue and the gold in their eyes is just unbelievable. Yeah, that's like what they're most, I think, that's the beauty that they're most famous for, I think, is is their jewel-colored eyes. That's, yeah, that's a good way to put it. So let's talk about, you know, you talk about coexistence. Um, you know, one of the other things I was going to bring up tonight, and, and some NAMPA members probably are familiar with this, but you did a project where you actually kind of, I guess, kind of lived out in the field with a deer, um, so you talk about coexistence where you kind of tracked it and it's, and it's been several years now since you've done this project, but, it, but it's still, it's still getting airtime. You, you, you still show it quite a bit. I think there's still some, some interest around it. Um, and since it was, it was in, it was in Wyoming, if I remember correctly, correct? Yeah. So yeah. You're right. Probably not too far from, from where Ron. Yeah. Where, where were you at? So we started the, the migration started in just near Big Piney. And we hiked basically up over the the Wyoming range and the Salt River range and ended up in, in um, uh, Star Valley in Idaho. Star, well, yeah, part of the Star Valley is in Wyoming also. But mm-hmm. so you started yeah. you started kind of at the end of winter, followed them back mm-hmm. to their spring and summer ground. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Nice. It, it's actually a, a big story that not too many people know about. We've talked about it a little bit, but that's actually the longest migratory corridor in North America. That mule yeah. deer migration coming from the Red Desert back up to that uh, big piney Pinedale area. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up Red Desert. That's where I did my master's project was on oh, the nice. Red Desert. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people don't know about that place. <laughs> No, it's it's a beautiful place, but it's not somewhere I'd love to live. It's yeah, it's a hard, hard landscape. Mm-hmm. I respect anyone and anything that can live there. It's it's some of the most extreme landscape I've seen in the United States, including Alaska. Yeah. So you you walked all the way up and over and then documented obviously the the path or the migration corridor that these deer are using? Yeah, um, that's exactly what we did. So one member of the team is a mule deer. She's a mule deer, mule deer biologist who'd been tracking this particular doe and many others for a few years. And this, this doe, deer 139, had a particularly, it wasn't the longest route, but it was still about twice as long as a lot of the other deer. Um, and it was very difficult. And there were many times where the biologist was like, why is she going that way? And so she really wanted to experience what the, you know, as close a proximity as she can as a human to what this deer experiences on her migration and see it firsthand. So she and a couple of friends, um, one one of whom's a naturalist and the other um, is, she's actually a Wyoming public radio reporter um, and like a conflict reporter and stuff like that. Um, and uh, joined together to go on this migration. And then my friend Jamie Dittmar and I were the filmmakers on it. And so we went on that, we went on it every step, well, almost every step of that migration as well. There was like a few miles in the middle that we we skipped, but the rest of the team didn't. 
so what were some of the what were some of the obstacles that you guys encountered? Obviously, is she going around predators? Is she is that why she took the harder route, or did you no, have any she's, conclusions? She's not going around predators. Um, I'm sure she's doing things to try to avoid them, but um, yeah, that's they are right there the whole time. I mean, you don't necessarily see them, but you see the signs of them. There are wolf track and cougar track and bear track and we saw coyotes like right on the migration trail, like almost step for step where the deer go. And um, so she's good at avoiding the predators, though she's not going around them. And some of the challenges were things, well, right out of the gate, um, Sam, the biologist fell and messed up. You know, she's, she thought she had sprained her leg pretty bad. Um, and we hadn't even like gotten out of eyesight of the car yet. I was just going to say that. I was like, <laughs> I remember like a, you could see the car, the truck in the background. And yeah. it's like, oh my. On like an oil and gas road, we're still in the fields and, and she doesn't know how it happened, but it did and decided to continue. And we found out after um, afterwards that she had, actually uh, broken her leg <laughs> she had fractured her leg she and, hiked uh, that she, whole thing on a wow yep she did we wrapped it and she was carrying like a pack that was probably you know 75 pounds and this is a woman who's like I think maybe 5'2 or 5'3 and at most like 120 pounds <laughs> And she fractured her leg, carried that pack, and she still did the migration. And she didn't complain. She, like, cracked jokes the whole time. Tough girl. So what do you, What was your most memorable takeaway from that whole experience? Um, you know, I mean, there were a lot of things that we learned um, and sort of, you know, seeing what they have to navigate and, and deal with, you know, a big thing was the fences. Uh, there, there is an, an enormous amount of fences out there. I think in one day we had to cross something like 14 or 15 barbed wire fences in a single valley. Um, and so, of course, like navigating those kind of habitat issues that are tied to the way that we fragment the landscape. That was a big thing. Another was that general kind of land ethic of just really sinking into your landscape and appreciating it and seeing it from, you know, an animal's eye view. Um, and then the, the women's, the friendship that we had, like, I don't know that I would have made it, um, because I'm not like a super athlete or anything. Um, but the women on this this trip, the people on this trip were just such a joy to be around. Um, we all struggled, but everyone was like helping each other all the time and they're potty mouthed and, you know, cracking jokes and playing jokes. And uh, it it was like a joyful suffer fest. Um, and it taught me that there were so many things that I could do mentally and physically that I never would have given myself credit for thinking I could actually do it. Um, and, and I got through it and it wasn't by myself clearly, but, um, and it was, I was sometimes the slowest person, but 
we did it. And this deer showed us that they, she showed us that path. Um, and I will be grateful for that forever. So that's my personal takeaway. So you climb mountain ranges and you climb bridges or scale bridges and you say you're not an athlete. <laughs> I'm, I, I jog. That's like what I do. I, I like trail run. That's pretty much the extent of it. And I'm, I'm a bit foolhardy. Like I try to be foolhardy, um, in a smart way. So, um, if there's something that I really want to try to do for a project, I, I'm not going to let the fact that I haven't done it before or that I'm, I'm don't know if I can do it, stop me from trying. Um, but then I'm going to do everything I can to, to prep for it as best as possible. And, um, somehow it's worked out so far. I mean, once you're in it, you're kind of like, I got to do it. There's no other, (laughs) there's no, not, there's no quitting right now. You have to do it. Like if you quit, sometimes if you quit, you could die. Like when I was climbing the bridge, if I quit, I was literally by myself and one slip away from dying. Um, but you just somehow just do it, I guess, like the shoe. (laughs) One foot in front of the other, right? Yeah. Yeah. So something else that I that I hear, you know, kind of consistently through the projects that you talk about is that you do a lot of partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you work with biologists, obviously, you, I'm assuming you probably do some, you know, grant applications, you have to find funding somewhere. So, you know, those are you know another set of partnerships. Can you talk a little bit, you know, especially since, you know, I know we have a lot of listeners that either want to get into doing something similar or maybe they are but they I know I have projects that I'm always trying to figure out I'm like all right I have all these things I want to do but I don't have the the funding to do it so um you know without giving away all your trade secrets and I know you know we'll talk a little bit about the class that you have that you're you're teaching but you know maybe some some high level points or some tips that you could give to people to kind of maybe help get them started yeah you know I think well I'll Almost every project does, unfortunately, start off um, completely like we're just doing it. We don't have any support or resources and we have to create stuff. It's like in order to prove that we can do it. So there's uh, there's often a bit of a proving ground. So if you're out there and you feel like, oh, man, I'm just like putting my all into this, like and that makes you nervous. That's totally understandable. But it's also, I think, just it's, it's something that we all have to do as we're trying to get our projects off the ground. And so you do what you can and get a little piece of it together and start using that to your advantage to show people what your project is rather than just tell them, because I think people have a really, really difficult time um, knowing, even if you're really good at describing something, knowing what it is in your head, you know, so if you can show them a little bit, and get them hooked that way. And then also get them, I think, interested in you as the person producing it. I think that's something that a lot of people aren't comfortable with. And I, I, I am trying to get more comfortable with that. Um, but people are investing just as much in the person that's wielding the camera and has the idea as they are in the idea, probably even more so. So, um, just don't, that doesn't mean you have to sell yourself necessarily, but just don't be afraid to, um, find those ways to let yourself be yourself and, um, and see how people gravitate to that, you know? Um, 
But putting together things like if you can put together anything visual, whether it's a portfolio or like a nice set of images um, with like almost like a magazine article, you know, that's kind of describing the project and the major pieces of the project. Um, if you get any partners, even if they're in-kind partners or it's you're partnering with a nonprofit that is is not necessarily giving you money, but they are a collaborator on the project. Anything that you can show that has that your project has some legs to it um, will help with fundraising efforts. And another thing to do is, the, I mean, the collaboration, Don, is so important. And um, I wouldn't have gotten my permits without the collaborations and the meetings with the biologists. And also, if you're not good at a skill, collaborate with someone who is better at that. I That's how I've made a lot of headway with projects is that I have friends or collaborators that they're actually really good at writing grants and I'm, or they're really good at going in and talking to businesses and getting people excited about your project. And so you pick the skills that you're really good at and you find people who are really good at the skills that you don't have. And you figure out how do we bring our two pieces together to actually make these projects happen. Mike, you probably experience quite a bit of that on some of the projects you work on, don't you? Yeah, there's always a lot of collaboration. Anytime we go for shooting something for BBC or whoever, it's there's always a bunch of people involved, and they've found the people that know the most about whatever you're doing. So, yeah, you end up with it, a lot of that. It takes a load off too. I think something that that people also really struggle with is that sense of just being overwhelmed. You know, there's so many things. Once you start, you get past that excited idea phase and then start thinking about the practicalities of doing it. And it's like, Oh my God, there's, there's just so many things to try to figure out and I don't know how to do them or uh, I don't have the time. And so finding those people who can take on those pieces, it just makes things feel like the pieces are smaller. I can have my lane and we can make, actually make progress. We talk about quite often about networking and having a good network of people that not only feed you information about where certain animals might be or where you might find certain behaviors, that kind of thing. But uh, I think what you're talking about, the, the level of collaboration that you're talking about is just putting yourself out there and uh, building those relationships before some of this stuff happens. And that opens the gate then for you to, to jump in and, and work with, you know, a, a large state university, uh, helping them with research that they might not have been able to capture otherwise and, and gather information that they wouldn't have been able to capture otherwise. But it does open a lot of doors. And I like the comment that you made about, um, you know, the buy-in. The buy-in is as much for the person doing the project as it is for the end product. And I think that's probably, you know, we do pro tips on the Wild and Exposed podcast, and that's a great pro tip to throw out there is that the buy-in is for you as an individual as well as the product that you're trying to put out. Absolutely. And I think for people who, you know, some people are just naturally really good at it and it they don't they don't seem like they're trying to sell themselves too hard or or they, they don't feel shy about trying to put themselves out there. Um, and then there's a lot of folks that they're just like, I don't, I don't want attention. I just want to do this work. Like it's not about me. It's about the issue. And I think you can take that same 
almost mentality um, to take your own concern and ego and um, self-consciousness out of the approach. Because uh, if you, if you think about putting yourself out there because you want to make sure that the story gets out there, then that I think shifts the attention away from you, even though you're still putting yourself out there, if that makes sense. It does. It definitely does. It's hard. It's hard, you know, as, as creatives, we feel like it's about our work and not about us. And sometimes we like to kind of hide behind our work. Um, So it's, I know I've had people ask me, they're like, you have a marketing background. Why do you have trouble selling yourself? I'm like, because it's still about me. It's, you know, give me a product to sell and it's a different situation. It's now you're talking about my creative work and it's more a reflection of me personally. So it does, it changes things. And I could see this, a collaboration or a project that you want to film or work, you know, talking about cormorants or something, you want it to be about your subject, but Mm -hmm. the subject usually isn't going to be able to, to help you produce that. So. So do you keep a big notebook full of ideas for all these different projects? I mean, because I'm sure you see them everywhere, right? Everywhere you go, if you're a, if you're observant and you're into the wildlife or nature or whatever, there's just a million ideas and a million conservation stories. How do you navigate that? I mean, because there's only so much time in this whole life thing, right? And if you're talking about two or three years on a project, it's like there's not a lot of time to do too much stuff. So how do you figure that part of it out? Um, I have so many notebooks. I even have one that literally came with the title half-assed ideas written on the front. (laughs) Um, yeah, so many notebooks. Um, I do think that it's good to have a couple of projects that are like, they're kind of your, you may have one or two big personal passion projects, and then you'll have smaller, you know, projects that you do along the way. And so you've got those long-term ones and try not to have too many of those. And, um, and then you can have a bunch of littler ones as well. Um, another thing I used to do and is, um, because I was doing that a lot. I was like, I was coming up with story ideas a lot, like obsessively trying to find story ideas. Um, and I would find all these story ideas because I'd read scientific journals and stuff like that, um, like a nerd and, and find them. And I knew that there was no way that I was going to get to photograph 99% of them. Um, it's not like I was coming up with a hundred ideas. It was like, you know, 10 or 12 every few months kind of thing. But what I did is I started a a blog, yeah, blog. And I turned that into a newsletter and I was just giving away story ideas. Like, well, I can't do these ideas. I want someone else to maybe feel inspired to do it. So I would put together, I do the the little news story and um, use whatever photos came with, you know, the scientists or whatever. And um, and then I would do a newsletter and I'd, I'd basically like every few weeks, um, put it out there and I'd be like, here's your, your list of story, you know, kind of like getting you kickstarted on some story ideas that could be cool. And I ended up like parlaying that into an email list that had a lot of photographers and a lot of editors signing up for it. Um, and so that was a way that I, I could feel like, oh, maybe someone out there will make something cool out of this, this story. 
um, and also building my community and network in a way that didn't just feel like I was um, trying to be like, hey, look at me. It was more like, can I, how can I be of service to you? And I, I also need to grow my network, but I, I'm much more comfortable doing that if I can at the same time be of service to the community at large. It's a great idea. It's actually brilliant. Hey, thanks. <laughs> I don't do it anymore. <laughs> but if someone else wants to do it, they should totally do it. <laughs> I was going to say, well, maybe I might steal it because I think I'm up to – so I do sim- – similar to your notebooks, I keep on my phone, I keep a notes. And, I, and I've actually <laughs> – I had one that started out as just photo stuff and then I had – and then I separated. So I do a lot of writing as well. So I do both the photography and the writing. So then I started one that, you know, like my writing ideas are kind of starting to fall into the photo one. So then I started a writing one and now I just started a third one called Pitches. Like it's mm-hmm. just – I'm like if I printed them out, it's probably about 150 pages <laughs> worth of ideas. It's just – like you said, I'm just – I, I – I can look at it and get so overwhelmed. There's so many things to talk about out there. Yeah, I'll never have the – I can look at it and go, I want to do all these. But, yeah, there's just so much yeah. – there's only so much time in the day. Are there any that have, like – that have pulled at your heartstrings a little bit more? Like, for whatever mm-hmm. reason, if even if you don't know what that reason is, like, have a few kind of risen to the top? Okay. Def- yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. But I, I love the idea good. of sharing them. I'm even thinking, you know, like Facebook group, like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, you know it's- I'd sell them. <laughs> I sell yeah. pro tips to these guys all the time. Yeah. Or I try to sell them. See, you're, you're the good business person. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to change gears real quick and just ask you out of your projects, what's the percentage of like still photography and motion and time? I mean, can you segregate that out or is it something where every project gets a little bit of everything? Um, every project gets a little of both, but some projects definitely lean more one way than the other. So sometimes the project, um, is more a film project and it might be dictated by um, whether I started it or, or someone else like had, they're like, we want to make a film. Plus we also want to shoot stills. So that can dictate that. Um, And then sometimes the story seems to just lend itself better to one or the other. Um, But like with the Cormorant project, it's, been largely stills, but I've been shooting a lot of video along the way. And I have an idea for, um, what I think could be a feature length film, um, and kind of inspired a little bit by some, some of the likes of Aldo Leopold and John McPhee and and these old, older land ethic folks and, um, putting that into practice today. So, I, I think it could end up in long term having almost equal parts of both. So you've got the drama we heard about already. So that's half the battle right there. <laughs> yeah. I'm really excited because I on that project, you know, I've met some some people who hate them, like with a red hot passion. And um when and they'll I even had one of them. He he used to he's like a third generation fish hatchery worker. And the cormorants are hated because they eat the 
these endangered juvenile salmon as they're being released from net pens. And it's like these people just spent, a, you know, a year or two getting these million fish ready and they release them. And then there's like thousands of cormorants coming down and just feasting on all of that. Um, and so I, I met, I went and met with him and he didn't have anything really nice to say about them. I actually met him through a Facebook group because I put a call out asking people that, that if they'd be willing to share their experiences. And he straight up asked me, like, he's like, are you sympathetic to the cormorant? And I was just like, well, yeah, I am. My, but my life experience is not the same as yours. And I want to hear about yours. So um, at the end of like a two hour long conversation, he shook my hand and want, and introduced me to current fish hatchery workers. And I have since gone out and documented those fish hatchery workers you know, using methods to try to release the fish at times when the cormorants are, are none the wiser, you know, to reduce those impacts. And I, I definitely would not agree with this person, but he spoke to me and he was still nice to me after we had a conversation and he knew that I liked cormorants and he didn't. And I think it's important to try to figure out ways to make room for that. Wow. There's so many issues in the world today that if we could just do that, mm-hmm. just sit down, talk, hear each other's perspective, try to understand each other, we'd solve so many problems. You know what I mean? And yeah, I just, yeah. And it's, and kudos to you because I really, this is going to sound bad, but I really feel like that's what true journalism should be. But mm-hmm. there's not a lot of that around anymore. You know, it really seems one-sided and tainted and it doesn't matter. Pick a side, which is really mm-hmm. sad that we have sides, but pick a side and the story is going to be very tainted. You know, you don't, you don't get a good perspective. So anyways, kudos to you. I think that's I don't know if I hit on what you were thinking, Ron, but absolutely that that's, a, you know, we're so divided on so many different issues and it's, it's all this way or all this way. And there's no in between and there's no listening to each other. There's mm-hmm. no trying to see the different perspective. It's just, you must believe what I believe. And I, I think that's led us to the point we're at right now. And so I think that's a, you know, it's a fantastic story to share. Number one, you left both feeling the same way that you felt before, but at least you've got an understanding of where the other person's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, that's an important thing for sure to be trying to put yourself through more often. I think, I think people are dealing with lots of trauma on, on, on lots of issues these days. And it was, it was very, it was cathartic to have that moment and, it was also inspiring. And so, um, you know, he gave me without realizing it, the idea for my bigger film. Um, and that film I think could either, you know, if I ever get to pull all the pieces together and make it happen, I think has the potential to be really healing. Uh, but it could also be really devastating personally too, if it, if it doesn't go, uh, well, um, not, not as in terms of, the film actually happening, but if the, the actual like experience that the film is trying to address doesn't work, it, it's a bit of an experiment. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm like on that note. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, right? <laughs> We're all like taking it in, but 
Anyway, no, I so mean, I saw this bird bring a feather to another bird, and she was not having it. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, I already got a bunch of those. <laughs> so, what's your passion as far as like if you're going to compare stills to video? Are they equal, or since you started out with stills, is that where it all lies? I just think there's so many people that are in the crux of starting as photographers, but realize that video is taking a great big leap forward right now, and and our media devices can play all that. I, I'm just curious. Um, am I allowed to say that it depends on the weather? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think overall stills are my favorite, um, but. Film is really fun and inspiring and it kind of scratches, a, it, it has enough overlap in motivation and even function, but scratches a lot of creative itches and, and also um, frees you up to try some things that you can't do in still photography. So it just makes me feel that much more able to find the right path to any story you know yeah there's definitely you know i think for all of us we're you know we'd like to tell the story you know and it's you know we just have different tools sometimes to do it and i mean i kind of get the same thing people say well you're a writer that takes pictures or you're a photographer that writes i'm like i'm a storyteller it's i use what i need to to for what that moment is and depending upon who i'm working with and who what the the outcome is going to be or there are yeah. a lot of variables that go into it. I don't know about you, but I used to get really anxious about that question of the, well, are you this or you're that, you know, you can't, you can't be, you're good at one thing or only okay at many things, you know? So, um, and I used to then not really know how to like, well, God, I just feel like I don't really quite fit anywhere because I find multiple things very complimentary and useful and interesting. And I don't know how to describe myself then. Um, or if someone's going to then try to pigeonhole me, if I spend too much time here on this part versus this part, you know, so. Um, well, I think. And that, I think we're. Oh, what were you going to say, Ron? I was just going to say, sorry. I, is it I don't really fit anywhere or I fit everywhere? I guess there's two different ways to look at that with with a different experience and different parts of your passion, you know, the, the more experience you can get in each one, then you become more multifaceted and, you know, able to, to go out and take on maybe more where something that is one dimensional uh, mm -hmm. might not be able to do it on their own. So I think there's different ways to look at that as well. And, you know, the same way that you've looked at some of the other things that you've already, already talked about, you've, you're not afraid to take on a challenge. That's obvious. Um, but making yourself less one dimensional and a little bit of a, you know, do it all type of photographer, videographer, I think is advantageous. Yeah. I think, I think people have the ability to be good at more than one skill, especially skills that are com so complementary, um, like writing and photography. If you can write and write well and shoot, you know, good storytelling and beautiful pictures, like, man, you've got a leg up on so many people in terms of uh, potential assignments and work and things like that. Um, and 
I also think that it just puts you in the position of always making sure that you're learning, you know, you don't get, you don't rest on your laurels. You don't ever really think you're an expert in anything. And so it keeps you learning and keeps you willing to try new things and pushing yourself. One of the things that I was going to ask, and I think we overlook a lot when we do these Napa uh, episodes is, could you share a little bit about, you've, you've told us a little bit about what involvement you've had. How do you see it as an advantage for photographers, videographers, uh, to be a member of an organization like NAMPA? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the big one is the community. Um, there is just so much knowledge in the membership of NAMPA and in and then in, you know, the board, the board members and the people that are teaching the, the courses. And what's really nice is that it, it doesn't really matter what draws you to nature photography, um, whether it is a hobby or you want to run workshops or, you know, you want to be a story producer, um, you can find a group of people within Nampa that have just a wide array of knowledge that, and they're happy to share and they're happy to go in the field and nerd out together. And that's, for me, it, it really turned something that was nebulous. Like how do you get involved professionally with conservation photography into something that was tangible and, Um, for me, you know, I came in, well, I wasn't that young. I was, I was in my late twenties. I was nearing the end of grad school. Um, but they, I came in and, and they really fostered me and they also treated me with respect, which I really liked. Um, especially being a young woman who, um, I often deferred to other people. Like I, I would be the quiet one. I'm not the quiet one really anymore. So they helped me not be the quiet one. <laughs> um, but they, they provided a home and an oppor- you know, opportunity to be involved. They gave me a platform to actually have a voice. And that was really important to me because the whole reason I'm involved with photography at all is to have a voice. I think we hear that a lot that it's it's allowed people to open up and to see the possibilities and network with people and you know find a comfort level and just find find other peeps like yourself it's you know like you said to just kind of nerd out i mean you know i don't have too many friends that are willing to sit and talk about cormorants for an hour you know it's i know it's, uh, thank you everybody for letting me really really <laughs> <laughs> dive into the cormorants with you <laughs> um so I actually have, I have two things for, that I still wanted to get into super quick. I, we don't need, this is an older project, but we were talking a little bit about, you know, kind of not so much thinking outside the box, but talking a little bit about if you have a project, you really have to think about how do you want to do this? How do you want to get the word out? And I think that's kind of the, so for those that don't know, Morgan's actually been in Playboy and not as a model, but as as a photographer, she had um, some work appear in there. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because you don't hear that very often from a nature photographer. I can't imagine any any of the any of the guys. I have not been 
I don't know if any of the guys have ever had the luxury of being. Well, that was that was very judgmental of you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just joking. (laughs) No, well, it's not. It's not. It's just not a traditional avenue for our work. yeah, so I, I think, you know, whether it's it's Playboy or somewhere else, I, I think that trying to find outlets for your stories that aren't the traditional outlets is a good exercise. Um, you know, you're going to reach people who might not pick up so many of the magazines that we love to read, like Audubon or, or Nature Conservancy or, or National Geographic, things like that. Um, so it's a real opportunity to to connect your issue with with people who might not otherwise know anything about it. Um, but you do have to find, I think, angles into your story that you that would appeal to those audiences. So having some research on on the kinds of audience, the readership of different publications is helpful. I know the joke is like, oh, I read Playboy for the articles. But the thing is, is Playboy has actually a very storied history of excellent long form journalism on pretty big issues. So and I actually have a a friend from um, journalism school. Um, He was a Ted Scripps fellow. So he was a career journalist when I was a grad student who came in for a year to do this fellowship. And he he had a story feature story as a writer published in playboy in an environmental story. And it's a great, it's a great outlet. So with, with that story, it was about the environmental impacts of drug cartels cultivating cannabis on our public lands and, you know, the dangers that are involved with trying to even monitor that and try to clean it up. And so it had intrigue and, you know, camo and canine officers and scientists going in with the law enforcement teams. And um, so it had a lot of the, I think, you know, that, oh, you know, we're going on this adventure thriller thing, an environmental thriller thing that you could sell to the that audience. And it's a very important story. And it's not all like. Um, guns and testosterone. There's a married couple that's at the center of the story, and you know they they were their lives were put in jeopardy um, when they started doing the science to clean this up and monitor what was going on and made the connection between the grows and the poisoning of wildlife. And um, they actually had people come and break into their house and their lab um, and kill their dog. And so. Uh, there's this incredible family story behind it as well. And if you can find your stories don't have to be dangerous. They don't have to involve, you know, doing stupid stuff like climbing on bridges. Um, You can, you can make really powerful stories out of anything. One of my favorite nature stories is actually about a snail um, and a, a snail that, uh, grew had all of its sex organs on the wrong side of its body and these scientists were trying to find it a mate and they put out a call and there's apparently like a whole community of people who collect and like do like beauty pageants and stuff with like garden snails in England and they were like does anyone have a a snail that also has their organs sex organs on the wrong side and it was this like love story about a 
you know, a single sale. It wasn't love, but you know, that's how it was marketed. And it, it's just this really charming story that's in this little tiny, tiny animal in this one little vignette of life. And so there's good stories everywhere that can appeal to lots of that's people. That's a very specific audience. <laughs> yeah, but it's quirky enough that you're like, oh, <laughs> I want to hear about this guy. I yeah. sure hope Lefty finds a righty. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess the, the last thing that I had was I wanted to give give you, Morgan, a, you know, a, an opportunity to talk about the class that you're teaching with um, the Conservation Visual Storytellers Academy. You're doing yeah. a filmmaking class. That sounds pretty, Thanks, pretty interesting. Don. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Jamie Heinbuck started this academy, the Conservation Visual Storytellers Academy. And um, until recently, the main course was was Conservation Photography 101, which is brilliant. Um, but I get to be the second course, which is Conservation Filmmaking 101. And I basically spent all winter putting it together. And it's been really, really fun to go through and just really just like, like if I were trying to get into filmmaking, what I would want in a course, what I was looking for. And so I made my dream course for everybody else. <laughs> and it's like how you come up with story ideas, how you then take a, you know, a topic to an actual story, how you figure out how to craft that into a film story, as opposed to like a photography story, um, how they differ and everything about, okay, then how do you start making this a reality? How do you find partners in your subjects? How do you prepare? How do you shoot? What gear do you need? You know, what are the settings? How do you edit? Like I actually do um, video walkthroughs of the of a complete uh, workflow for editing a film and how you bring all the pieces in, create your radio edit, find music so that you don't get sued, you know, stuff like that. And um, and I'm just really excited to put it out there in the world. So uh, it's it's a big doozy of a course that you can take at your own pace and. I don't know if you've listened to me yabber on for the past hour. Um, that's a little bit of a taste of the tone that you'll get in the course as well. <laughs> when, is, when is that going to be released? It's live. It is currently available. Yeah. So, oh gosh, it's, let me, I should look up the, I think it's conservation storytelling com forward slash films i think let me just we'll put in the show notes we'll include a link but yeah it's available and we've already got people signing up and uh, i can't wait to see what kinds of films they make so in the course you're you're given the option you don't have to i'm not gonna like be monitoring you and giving you like oh so you still haven't done this homework assignment have you where's this reel that I said to do? Um, but you have like, a, I, you get like basically two prompts for different short films that you can potentially create by the end of the course if you decide to actually physically do it at the same time. So what, how long are we talking? What, as far as the course goes, are you, is it like 10 videos and each is an hour long or is it longer than that, shorter than that? So it's, five modules 
Um, spread across those modules are about uh, 24 or 25 lessons. And some of the lessons, I would say the average lesson is 30 to 45 minutes long. But there's a couple that are, are shorter bite-sized ones, and then there's a couple that are big doozies of ones, but it just didn't make sense to split them up. So you can hit pause and come back. <laughs> That's and we awesome. give you all sorts of like downloadable resources too. So like planners and shot list guides and, you know, things like that to just really make the process very straightforward and easy. And there's, there's film examples in there. Um, I have amazing friends who are also filmmakers and they provided all sorts of clips and um, access to films for people to learn, um, use as some of their living examples of different lessons. And, um, and, and there's like a resource guide to um, there's a whole resource list of music composers who all specialize in conservation and nature themed filmmaking. So you know that the person you go with uh, is really invested in the subject matter. Very cool. What's the cost of that class? So it is $997 and you can either pay all at once or there's like a, a, a plan that lets you break it up over a few pay different payments. Awesome. That sounds yeah. really worth it. Cause that, I mean, what you listed there is that's just so much stuff. Right. And if you can do it at your own <laughs> pace, I mean, that's like going to college right there. Yeah. The, it's definitely, I mean, I, I like to think of it as um, like once you, once you're able to make films, um, you should be able to make back the cost of the course in like a one to two day assignment. Yeah. I was just going to say that, yeah, you, you finish after that, that course, you finish with something tangible that you can now then go use mm -hmm. to sell yourself to, to turn that, to create that ROI on it. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Morgan, have you in that thought process, have you guys, did you guys think of a way or, to provide a way for somebody to, you know, ask questions and maybe dig a little deeper into some specific things that they may have questions on. Yeah. So there's a, um, there's a thing called the quad that you get access to when you take the course. And so the quad has, every course has its own study hall group, um, that lives inside the quad. And, um, so within that you can do a lot of that Q and a, um, sharing stories about your experiences, you know, occasionally, you know, you'll have people like me or you might have other people come in that will help you know, field questions. Um, and then there's also an event, like an event calendar that you get access to where things crop up um, that aren't just for your course, that they could be, you know, probably related to anything. Um, and if there's something that crops up, you can set an alert and I'll be like, Hey, today there's going to be a live discussion with, you know, so, so guest speaker coming in. So. Wow. That's, that's pretty impressive actually. Cause you've taken a self-learning module and made it interactive, which is pretty impressive. That's, that's, that's well worth the money. <laughs> she is, she's a smart cookie. That one. She is, <laughs> she came up with all that. She did endless amounts of research and, and um, I'm excited that, she invited me to be a part of, you know, part of it. 
Well, I think everything you did is huge too, right? I mean, it's yes, just to, it the time that. it takes to put that course together. It had <laughs> to take all winter. I, uh, I, I like almost lost my voice from speaking and you know, doing all the recordings and everything. And, um, yeah, it took a lot of time to, pick, to put together, but I'm really proud of it. And I think that it'll really help people kind of get over any hurdles that they might have, um, to get into filmmaking. That's cool. Awesome. Very cool. The yes. thing is too, is, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time and I guarantee you if I took that course I would learn a ton and I I just I just feel like I learn something new every day anyway so yeah. in this business so doing something like that is amazing oh thank you Mike <laughs> well, things change so quickly too it's just so fast in this industry a lot of our audience with Wild and Exposed came into photography a little bit later in life so anything that you can utilize to shorten the curve, you know, the, the learning curve that's out there, I think is, is advantageous. And most people have, you know, expendable income that they're spending on equipment. And so take some of that income. We've always talked about taking some of that income and do workshops, do classes like this. And like Jason said, you know, the interactive ability with a course like that, you usually don't get. So that aspect is is going to prove important just to, you know, for clarification. Yeah, I think it's important to not feel alone in the process. You know, you can make a lot more headway. Things seem a lot less scary if you've got others that you can lean on that help you through it. So do you guys have any other questions? Oh, I don't. I'm excited to go watch the videos that... She's a uh, the the move the what do you call them trailers short movies Tra Tra <laughs> no not the trailers I'm gonna go watch them oh yeah I watched oh. the trailers before the podcast I watched the deer yeah, one thirty nine trailers too yeah I watched the trailers too I'm gonna go watch the films that's pretty cool well and there so. was an additional one that we didn't talk about which is I Mariposa and I'm sure mm -hmm. you have others than these three these just happen to be the three that I'm the most familiar with yeah yeah um, what was so deer one thirty nine I Mariposa and what was the other one. Those are the two I watched. Or maybe that was the only um, two. I thought there were three. Maybe that was the only two. There's another good one. It's short. It's only four minutes is, uh, or five minutes. It's called The Snow Guardian um, about this guy, Billy Barr, who is a hermit who lives in a ghost town um, that is also a research station. And he, in the winter, he's there by himself. And for over 40 years, he's kept track of the snow. Is that dude in Colorado? Place. Yeah. I've heard about him. Yeah, and it it came in second in the in uh the COP22 film for climate competition a few years back and Nat Geo picked it up, but it's just like a it's a it's a really sweet film about a wonderful human being and it's short and I think it's a nice example of you know as you're thinking about films, you don't need to think that you're necessarily having to jump into a big you know, feature length story. If you can learn how to tell something in a few minutes, that's going to really go a long way in teaching you how to find good stories for even longer films. And where, where can we find that? Uh, you could just Google National Geographic Billy Barr. Uh, it's B-I-L-L-Y-B-A-R-R. And it'll, it should be the first video that comes up. It's got something crazy, like 12 million views 
on it now or something. Wow. Very cool. It'll be 12 million and one. I was just going to say that. <laughs> we will add a few or more to it. 12 million and four. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we didn't talk about the I Mariposa film. That's another, um, mm-hmm. that's a pretty powerful film. I think, you know, that talks about the butterflies and the, the wall along the, the border. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also a very controversial subject, but I feel like, so that film very quickly, um, that's really Krista Schleier's brilliance. And I'm sure if you're a NAMPA member, uh, you're familiar with her. She's just won many, many recognition awards and she's just a wonderful human being. And, um, she's been very involved in documenting, um, a variety of issues, especially environmental ones along the border for over a decade. And so Jenny Nichols and I helped her make that film and she did a good job. I mean, she found our characters were a Mexican immigrant, a Trump voter and a, and the butterfly and um, kind of exploring the issue um, from a lot of different perspectives. Yeah. Again, like, like we were saying earlier with the, with the cormorants, the, you know, the well-rounded story of you know, showing all sides of it. It really is where true journalism, impactful journalism comes from. Mm-hmm. You all need to go to Morgan's website too and look at all the images and we'll put a link in the show notes because a lot of the conservation style imagery that's there is really awesome. Thank you. I agree, Mike. I was actually looking at the singles and, I love, I mean, you can see your focus and I love it. It's just, you know, a lot of wildlife with uh, interaction with, you know, development and humans and uh, it's, it's, it's all really pretty cool imagery. So. Thanks. Man, I'll talk to you guys anytime. You just make me feel so good. (laughs) (laughs) We're out there taking pictures a lot of times where we're taking out the road grader or we're taking out the. Yeah. culvert or whatever you know and you're putting it in and it tells so much more of a story than a pretty little portrait of some sort of an animal right yeah well i definitely think there's room for both in the world um, for sure and it's it's both are very needed yeah you know it's funny i see this imagery and talking to you and it's it's you can't help but think i probably need to rethink you know, my bigger picture of what I would think is makes a good image. You know what I mean? Because this is, this is good stuff and it's does tells a story and that's what we're all trying to do. So. Well, I'm excited what you go out and uh, shoot next then, Jason, you gotta, you know, <laughs> put yourself set to the, the test. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, very good. Well, thank you very much, Morgan, for joining us today. It's always Always a pleasure to hear all the things that you're working on and the, the positive impact you're having. So Thanks, Don. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we will include in the show notes some information about um, your website, your Instagram handle. Oh, yeah. At Moheim. M-O-H-E-I-M. Super easy. So definitely go out and check out her Instagram page and um, take a look at the show notes once we have that available so that you can look at some additional information about her course, um, some of her projects and her upcoming work, including the cormorants. Once that is being in, um, kind of moves forward in production. So, and as, as always take a look at nampa.org. If you are not a member, see um, some of the benefits that we have as well. And some of the great ways that you can 
continue to learn and improve your own photography and or filmmaking because we do have a lot of filmmakers within the organization too. So thank you to everybody and join us next time on the Nature Photographer Podcast.